Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Autism and all the ships at sea. Uh, you're listening to Stim for Stim, the relationship podcast by and for autistic people. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, uh, Zach Budrick, who else is here with me tonight? Hi there, uh, Charlie Stern, and we've got a full house. Uh, we've got Mr. Bird, Paris, and Stevie and Nikki, uh, who I have renamed on the internet, Chris uh, Jenner and Courtney Kardashian, because we are relying on pet finder names to make us go viral uh because you know i'm fostering for a very tiny bird rescue not a lot of people apply not a lot of people are looking for uh special needs and uh pre-loved birds so we are casting um you know stevie and nikki fighting with each other all the time uh into them being sassy shrewd business women <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story so i still have four birds girl, uh, girl in bosses. the background yeah girl <laughs> bosses and i have uh she was here the last time we recorded but i've got our uh eight-month-old chihuahua ziggy in the room with me right now and my mother-in-law's uh chihuahua lita is here as well. Uh, they're best friends, and she's over here like 90% of the time. And I think that they're tired enough that they have been, that they're from running around all day making their gremlin noises that they probably won't make a cameo. But just in case, I got eyes on both of them right now. And we have not introduced our guest yet, but they are someone who wears all sorts of hats, and I don't want to. Uh, give it short shrift. So uh, uh, would you like to do the honors yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Lee Cowart. I am the author of Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. I am a science journalist and former researcher and sometimes naked on the internet. And joining me today is uh, my cat, Larry Hot Dogs, who Hi. is probably going to be uh, irritated with me for not doting on her uh, in the way that she is used to. She is a very spoiled formerly former feral, and um, now she lives in luxury and is a huge pain. And I love her. I'm her butler, and it's great. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for joining us. And I just muted myself because the bird noises are so intense, but one of the parakeets just hit me in the head. Just like, <laughs> just like sheared, sheared by my temple. They are getting closer and closer and they, they always want to jump on me when Mr. Bird and Paris are on me, um, <laughs> but they're still scared of me. So yeah, one of them just flew at my head and then flew away. It's Eva mindset. I yeah, I know. I'm really excited about this episode. Um, we we have so many like things on the the trash pile that we have tried to do in the past, and uh, we have not yet had an episode about autistic people and kink. We have not yet had a successful episode that involves that. We have had many attempts. Oh no. Um, I know. So, <laughs> no pressure, Lee. <laughs> well, as as long as we don't actually like get into an argument, it'll get it'll be better than <laughs> our first attempt. I bar. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but but I'm really excited because uh, for me, BDSM involves like a lot of like regulated interaction and sensation yeah. yes. um in a way that like obviously is like 100% customizable for what you need like you know you are potentially interacting with tradition but you're not beholden to uh scripts as I think one would see in terms of like a, a a vanilla heterosexual sort of like male conquest female sort of thing like you know we have a lot of uh women who write in about their um uh their difficulties as autistic women connecting with men and I am mm. to assume that this is all vanilla and that the social scripts you know 
being hundreds and thousands of years old are very oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I see an element of freedom in BDSM because when I enter a situation, I, I know what I want and I am you know, negotiating every second with another person. Yes, yes. The, for me, BDSM gives me a lot of like really direct context and expectation and scripts and conversations that you can really, that you were supposed to have, that it's like the norm to have. And it's like, it functions if you're able to have these like direct conversations about what you want, what you like. Um, there's really, because it is in the interest of BDSM practitioners to move away from ambiguity for safety purposes and for emotional reasons, being in a situation in which I can very directly tell somebody like, this is what I like, this is what I want, um, this is what I'm into and have them not only say that back to me, but also affirm out loud that they want this, that they're here for this, it really allows me to stay much more present in the scene or the sex or the relationship without constantly being hypervigilant about being going off a script that I personally don't really know. And a lot of the people I play with are autistic as well. And it just seems like having, um, being allowed and encouraged to really go over some rules, go over sensation expectations. What sensations do you like? What sensations do you not like? What sensations would you like to explore? Um, asking those things to someone who is in the context of vanilla sex, where the expectation is this like, you know, kind of standard, almost rom-com script. People are like, well, what do you mean? What, what sensations? Like, why are you asking me this? No one's ever asked me that before. And getting into BDSM really gave me a much broader vocabulary and much bigger understanding of what it looked like to, um, say aloud what I want and, and hear what other people want and ask questions and really like get into the verbal side of what are we doing here? What are we going to do later? That kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I am hoping that listeners, no matter their orientation, will get out of this, that uh, communication has to be upfront. Yes. Um, you know, I think the first episode uh we ever did when it was just Zach and me we talked about something that could instantly enhance your life right now which is lube um <laughs> and lube and communication are things that I think in in queer and kink contexts are so normal right. uh you know, but I, I remember like when I was younger, trying to will things to happen, mm. to will someone to like me, to will someone to, uh, make their first move. And I, I feel like a lot of people are trapped in that. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I will say that movies do not help. No. Uh, <laughs> they do not at all, at all. There is, there is no communication during sex there. There's only vibes and you know, eye contact. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but there is a rich tradition within BDSM that you can dive into and learn from generations past. And mm -hmm. that is, that is pretty comforting to me that this is a living history where there are models, but you don't have to do anything. Uh, but I feel like Hollywood really holds people back in terms of if they are trying to pursue uh, a relationship kind of going in. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think what I'm trying to say is that um, a lot of us get our education from fiction. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think BDSM culture and history are going to be more helpful even if you aren't kinky at all yes i i yeah. agree with that for sure the thing i was thinking of was i i remember like it wasn't until the early 2010s when uh the the whole idea of affirmative consent became sort of broader discourse and like uh, mm -hmm. all the like old uh reactionary media men were going like so do these do these college kids expect you to just uh ask for permission every step of the way 
and that's just that seems like uh, such a relic. Well, of, yes. Yeah. yeah. First of all, <laughs> yeah. It just, but that also seems like just such a relic of uh, having your horizons completely limited to uh, this, like a uh, vanilla marital conception of sex, as opposed to something like uh, kink, where that's not only like a moral requirement, but it's also like a mm. big part of the the ritual. I guess is the word for it. Hmm. Ritual is yeah. a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, for me, the negotiations that I've done in a kink scenario really helped inform the way I would do those kinds of negotiations outside of a scene. Because I realized that having really clear, clearly articulated expectations and um, being able to share with someone very directly, based on like not scripts so much, but like templates templates for negotiating a BDSM scene are actually very oh, yeah. useful. Templates is, is the best word for it. Yes. And, and that's a big part of, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. I think that's a big part of uh, finding your own way as an autistic person in general is the idea that, you know, maybe you start with the idea of a script and that's not going to be reliable 100% of the time, but it will help you develop templates. Mm -hmm. It's very, it feels very good to me to have a structure of a template to work off instead of feeling like I'm, you know, trying to cheat off of somebody else's handbook that I never received. And so being able to use uh, negotiation tactics and just or steps and have like be able to look at it and say like, okay, this is how this person negotiated this. How would this work for me? How can I use this in this situation or over here with this different person, that kind of thing. And it really helps it's, it was so freeing. It feels so good to be able to get the kind of structure for expectation and emotional engagement that allows me to let go some and really enjoy the scene. And uh, I feel I feel so grateful that I have that in my life. It's such a good tool. It's such a full toolkit. And, you know, I feel like, you know, people talk about like kink versus vanilla, and I think it's a false dichotomy. Mm. Um, and I also don't like the, some people, I, I want to clarify when I say vanilla, I'm, just, I'm more using it to me like not kink um, and not using it in a derogatory fashion. And as an aside, I think it's funny that we use vanilla to describe something that like some people refer to as like boring or standard when vanilla is a seed pod of an orchid. It's like a very <laughs> luxurious and wonderful uh, scent and flavor that we use all the time that people love. It totally superseded floral flavors and baking when it came, you know, to, to the U.S. and like blew up uh, the way it used to. So I think vanilla is very sexy and very wonderful, um, both as a flavor and as, a, as and as a way to fuck. So uh, just to clarify on that front, I think however it feels good for you to engage physically and sexually with another person, as long as it's consensual, is wonderful. And the negotiations from BDSM can be really useful to negotiate whatever you want in bed. It doesn't have to be a spanking, but I think that people are not used to thinking of like, quote unquote, regular sex, whatever that's supposed to mean, um, as having those steps of like, what do you like? How do you not want to be touched? What are your limits? And how will you let me know you want to stop? I really like that one. I love that there is a way to slow down or hard stop a BDSM scene and give feedback as it's going on. Because that for me feels a lot safer when I'm playing with somebody that I'm going to know unequivocally if it has to stop. And I like that. It feels good to me. Yeah. Also, thank you for unpacking the kink versus vanilla thing, because I would say no matter what sex I'm having, I am lifestyle a kinkster, mm -hmm. um, but I am not beating the shit out of everyone I have <laughs> sex with, you know? I, my, my BDSM philosophy doesn't dictate anything I do in bed, um, you know, doesn't necessitate. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's not inherently going to involve pain and worship, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it very much is just going to be a communication style. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, where I go from there, that's, that's up to everyone involved. Um, 
yeah vanilla doesn't exist basically right you know yeah yeah because yeah and and I think autistic people have an advantage because sometimes I mean a lot of the time it's easy to be blunt and have no fear and if there are certain key points you have to hit you know asking permission at at every single point um I think that's that's going to be an easier skeleton for people Mm -hmm. who are unsure uh you know if if you do have to negotiate every single step of the way um almost you can you can mechanize it you can gamify it and um go from one step to another and i think that is very freeing i think structure is very freeing Mm -hmm. i agree do you have uh, like spe- any specific questions related to BDSM in this context or want to talk about like how to start these negotiations? Yes, I, I think you should leave that. Yeah. Um, I, for me, I like to do my scene negotiations or any, any negotiation with a potential partner in writing. For me, it gives me a chance to really be as specific as I can be and distill my thoughts to be as clear as possible which brings comfort to me because it makes me feel like, okay, I have done my best to communicate this. And now I want to see what your response is in writing. And I want to be able to refer back to this conversation. Um, But I tend to do most of my major conversations in writing. That is the style that works for me. I can become emotional, like a little emotionally overwhelmed having a serious conversation, pleasant or unpleasant, you know, anything too much is still too much. And so being able to, I feel like I can better regulate and sit with my emotional responses if I'm doing something in writing and having it to look back on to prepare for the scene feels really good. It can, it can be hard to put yourself out there. Like I get that. Um, and different people have different levels of rejection sensitivity. And that is something that comes up for some people when you are negotiating desire so directly. Uh, we are culturally indoctrinated to feel shame around what we want. And so the idea of really directly telling somebody, I want this, can be scary because they don't do it in the movies, like back to the whole movie thing. It's just Mm -hmm. like, you're supposed to kind of intuit your way through this fumbling ritual and then just have all these fireworks go off and everything will be perfect, but you'll never have to say it out loud. And it's hard to unlearn that. But Unlearning it allows you to more space to find out how to ask for what you want in a way that feels good to you. Like the negotiation, some people are put off by it because it sounds very like bureaucratic, but these negotiations can be very sexy. Like getting consent in the moment can be very sexy. It doesn't have to like when people talk about like, oh, well, what do you have to ask every step of the way? But yeah, and it could be fun. Having someone say yes when you ask them if they want something is amazing. And I don't think that gets focused on enough because like saying, you know, I want to do this. Do you want this in a scene or before a scene to get that to get that verbal or written affirmation? It can be really arousing because then, you know, you know, and that lingering doubt that's like, oh, am I doing this right? Do they really want me? Do they want to date me? I struggle with that. Like, unless until someone is like directly tells me that they're interested, I'm always like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm reading this right. So being able to hear that, like, yes, they want this. Yes, they want me to do that. Really, I find it really arousing. And I I find that it's just feels so much better than a lot of the fumbling ambiguity I did uh, when I was younger and trying to figure out like if I was staying on this imaginary script in the right way. So I find that it is, it's such, it is just massively expanded the amount of pleasure that I'm able to bring into my own life. And just because it sounds like paperwork does not mean it has to feel like paperwork. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, a chore is what you make a chore. That's true of a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love that now. Um, in terms of like Planned Parenthood led sex ed and other related models, I I name Planned Parenthood because uh, one of my friends from college is a full time sex educator for them. Um, I love that they are now teaching not only consent, not only yes or no, but 
enthusiastic consent. Yes. Uh, they are teaching enthusiastic consent. They are teaching fuck yeah instead of just yes. Mm -hmm. They are also teaching that a no is a no, a maybe is a no. Um, and I think that's really important. I, I would never, I, I actually don't accept sure ever. Like not mm. even if I'm sending nudes, I ask for consent to send nudes. And if it's a sure, I don't accept that. I, I say, is that a no? Or is that a yes? Or I, I say, I don't accept sure. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would have discovered um, or realized that I was autistic um, on the same timeline or with the same tools um, had I not been in a seven year relationship with someone from deep in in a kink scene um kink community not kink scene like a session mm -hmm. um i i would have not had those tools had i not been taught by that partner follow your yes mm. um you know if we were on a trip and we we did frequently take trips and we were feeling kind of hungry, but we weren't sure if we wanted to stop or we kind of wanted, needed to pee, but we weren't sure. It was always like, if you have that spark of needing something or wanting something, I think you want it. Mm. And if you're too tired, but want to be a good sport, but don't know if you can actually go out to a bar or whatever you know we were often celebrating Halloween together and that was like a four-day affair Halloween was like an Olympic sport for us so mm -hmm. if we needed if we needed to tap out you know because we needed to save our energy for the rest of the Halloween weekend um you know we were following our no any inkling of a no any sort of doubt or feeling tired or feeling um overextended everything shut down mm. um and it also you know often went hand in hand with needing food or needing rest and there was a point at which uh my former partner had um a changeable like battery symbol uh necklace uh, for like full battery, yellow, um, full battery was green, of course, uh, low battery was yellow and no battery was red. And of course those are, um, BDSM metrics oftentimes, um, mm -hmm. you know, yes is green, maybe is, uh, yellow or you're, you're getting to a no with the yellow. You should mm -hmm. slow down with the yellow. Um, and then red is everything needs to stop. So despite the fact that we did not have sex for most of this relationship, it was a BDSM oriented autistic relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Charlie, it's so interesting uh, because I have actually been at uh, events for autistic people that uh, passed out uh, name tags with that exact same color coding you're discussing. So that's another way that they dovetail. Mm -hmm. that's awesome that's uh, really good to know yeah no I love that I know someone who has um has a tattoo of a balloon and they color in uh the balloon themselves based on certain metrics and it's like a visual communication device to show like where they're at and I think that's I think that's really wonderful yeah. um you know going back to to what you were saying I think so many of us are in, kind of indoctrinated in the idea of when we're supposed to say yes. And it leads to, you know, it led to me becoming very like uh, dissociated from what I actually wanted because I was trying really hard to like mask and stay on a very specific script. Like this is when people want food. This is when people want this. This is what I should say now. This is what I should say later. And so being able to like actually kind of come back to myself and be like, wait, do I really want this? Why am I saying yes to this? Uh, it's taken a lot of years to kind of, and I'm still breaking those patterns of being like, okay, do you want this thing? Is this really your yes? Or is this the yes that you learned you were supposed to give in this situation to fit in, to communicate with people, like to not disrupt the flow of what I, I think is supposed to happen. And I think that like coming to that felt sense of yes, or that felt sense of no uh, has been really life-changing for me. 
And that's, that's one of the things I love about a negotiated BDSM scene is there's always a way out for me. Like I, at any point, if I'm just not feeling it, I can, I could call yellow, I can call red and it's done. And those, you know, I often struggle like to end a social interaction. I always have to like preset a way to leave. Otherwise I'll just kind of get stuck in this liminal space of like, how do I stop doing this without upsetting people? Like how I'm let you go. Right? Um, yeah, I'm going to let you go. And that was a good one. <laughs> I'm going to use that in a scene. It's my new safe word. Um, but so having, it makes me feel a lot safer to know that I have a very direct and unambiguous way to leave that is pre-negotiated or to stop that is pre-negotiated and, um, they're expecting to hear it and I won't accidentally get mired in some sort of social interaction that is uh, not making sense to me or that I feel like I'm, you know, messing up somehow or I'm upsetting someone else by like telling, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up in the church. That was not good for me. And so what I'm doing is I'm unlearning a lot of those people pleasing patterns and, um, kind of like projected good person facade. Like I am a good person, but I was really concerned about like, how how do I like broadcast all of the right things all of the right time? Um, and that's why I'm bad at leaving. <laughs> I used to be bad at leaving social engagements because I didn't want to make anybody upset. But now I know that that was a good for me because when I'm done, I'm done. And me staying in a situation that doesn't feel good to me leads to um, stress and activation in my body, in the past has led to increased substance use. Like if I couldn't leave physically, I would try to leave emotionally or through substances. And that's really hard on the body. That like, that, I, you know, I'm not trying to sound um, overly vague about it. There are like biochemical cascades of, of cortisol and activating um, neurotransmitters that, that really do cause physical changes being stressed out, being unable to finish an activation curve is, is hard. And I was putting myself in these situations because I was so worried about fucking up the exit. So with BDSM, I know what my exit is and it allows me to enjoy my, my time there a lot more. Yeah, and we talk a lot about autistic people not feeling fully human. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being in situations emotionally where we're sacrificing our comfort for another person because it's yeah. like, oh, you know, I'm not really, you know, you don't think your needs are valid because you're, you are subconsciously in the mindset that you are not as full of a person as mm -hmm. the other people present. I mean, oftentimes we, you know, we talked about uh, in the last episode how oftentimes people feel like, robots or aliens or cryptids or whatever <laughs> um and that you know that's a huge thing that you know you feel like you're playing a human you're mm. presenting as a human very much imposter syndrome about your own humanity but that manifests into also you don't feel like an equal player in these situations right this one gets me all the time where I'm running late to something or um I have to finish letting the birds have dinner or something. Uh, and I feel bad that people are waiting for me. Uh, but it's like, when I'm hanging out with this one other person who is my friend, like my schedule also factors into these plans. Yes. And I have such a hard time with that. Mm -hmm. um, like my timetables, my schedule, my needs, my exhaustion, should be taken into consideration because I am 50% of this interaction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're, we're also used to minimizing ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I think the one thing that any listener can take from this episode is the tools to be a little braver and feel a little more secure in our validity as a person with needs. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I very much spent a large part of my life trying to not be a person with needs and just be kind of like a, a thumbs up, <laughs> just like doing whatever. That's not good because also that's not real consent. That's not a real yes. That's a, that's a pre-programmed, that's a should, not a yes. 
And that's, that's the okay button. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and, <laughs> and often a coerced, yes. Yeah, and you know, something I've been doing to try to, to counteract that impulse to just be like, yeah, sure, uh, is take time. Like I still very much have a, a kind of a pre-programmed, yeah, sure, that's in there. And so I try to just like give myself extra time to be like, even if I think it's a yes, I'd be like, that feels like a yes. Um, I need just a little bit of time to like feel it out and not just immediately like check out and do what I think the script should be and actually be like, okay, is this what I want? And practicing saying no, you know, that it took me time to learn how to do that and feel secure in it. But the better I've gotten at protecting my yes, the better my yes feels. And the easier it's gotten for me to be like, mm, not for me, thanks. Uh, but it's a skill. It's a skill. And, you know, not to sound like a gym teacher, <laughs> you know, say no is as much of a muscle as anything else. It takes practice and it takes skill. And, uh, and it's something that can be learned and improved upon. Yeah, we are always talking about um, social skills being a muscle mm -hmm. and yes. how autistic people often work harder on hours. And I describe uh, the pandemic as atrophying my yeah. muscles um, and, and I, have to, I have to work harder. And uh, that's not a failure. That's, you know, me constantly improving. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I am a full-time writer. And uh, so I, I was able to spend a lot of time at home in the last two years because I work from home. And there were, you know, a lot of that was hard, but also it was the longest stretch of time that I have spent unmasked in my life. Like I figured out what worked for me and I got a lot more insight into what my actual days look like. If I wasn't, you know, interacting with lots of people outside the home and doing all of these things and all of this list and going out and being spoken to and being you know, like touched by strangers and like someone put their hand on the small of my back to move past me, things that really trigger like a flight response in me. I had time to not experience that. And it was extraordinary, extraordinarily illuminating. And I realized how energetically demanding my frequency of masking had become in mm -hmm. my everyday life. And so now I'm really working to kind of uh, restructure uh, various parts of my life because I realized I was doing things that didn't make me happy. I was doing things that made me feel like shit because I thought I had to do them. And then I stopped doing them and I was like, oh, oh, there's room for other stuff. Oh, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends have, uh, have come out in the last two years. And part of that is, you know, apocalypse shit. You know, time is running out. You got to confront some things. And part of it was like spending more time with themselves allowed them to hear themselves more clearly. It certainly was the case for me. I came out publicly uh, a year ago as non-binary, for lack of a better term, non-binary. That's the one I use professionally because I feel like it's uh, easily parsed and it's just been extraordinary. I feel like, oh, the, like a weight has been lifted. People say that and you're like, that's an overused metaphor. And then it happens and you're like, oh. I get why it's an overused metaphor that one works for me. Yeah, especially, uh, you know, past the points in your life where we are really trained to believe that, you know, by the end of high school or an equivalent age, you're supposed to have completely figured out all of the, the big aspects of who you are. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time when you have a life-changing revelation about yourself, any older than that, you feel like it must be an error of some kind because you're supposed to be past the point of all this. Yeah. And it's especially conflicting to have such a ability to hear yourself during such like a tragedy of such magnitude. I don't really talk about my experiences during it with my own interior state because I don't know how to say that without sounding like the world's hugest asshole. Like I don't, cause I don't mean to say that like, this is good because this happened to me or anything like that. I want to be very clear, but there is, there is truth that in having quiet time to myself, I have come to know myself so much better. And I still don't know how to, how to communicate that. I believe that the work is important. And so I, I keep putting it out there, but it is very, you know, it's, it's hard 
Uh, I've gotten wildly off topic. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, oh, it's but... totally fine. I, I yeah. do want to cycle back to masking and the autism sense, not the pandemic sense, um, mm-hmm. because this is such a gendered thing. Uh, mm. Just like hyper specifically with autistic men and autistic non-men, we as people who are perceived as not men, everyone in public is always trying to get our attention. Yeah. Everyone yeah. is demanding so many things from us. And it's such a good point for you to mention the, the hand on the small of your back Oof. thing. All the I, time. I, I, I have started angrily confronting people who do this and wear a big, scary leather jacket to make sure this happens less to me because I also like don't have enough of a fear response. So I will scream at a man and, you know, ignore my safety and the consequences um, because it is just thing after thing after thing of usually men, but sometimes women just like needing my acknowledgement and needing an interaction with me and it it's so it's so entitled and it's so subconscious and no one is thinking twice about needing something from me and I'm I'm sure that's the same uh experience for you and Mm -hmm. I I do believe it's very gendered Mm -hmm. it's very disruptive to the nervous system to be touched from behind by a stranger. I, I've started to just, I use um, just abject confusion. Did you touch me? They're like, what? I, I'm, I'm so, I, don't, I don't like it when strangers touch me. And they're like, what? <laughs> but you know, obviously you have to do it situationally like it, because there is a danger, but sometimes just being like, oh no, I don't like it when strangers touch me. People are just like, but, 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 you can't just say that to me. Like, oh, I did. Yeah, no, I don't like that. Please don't do that again. They just kind of look at you yeah. like a goldfish because um, people aren't used to hearing that. Some people are not used to hearing that. And I'm lucky I work, uh, I work as a bouncer and that has, that was just extra- extraordinary for me because now if someone touches me, um, I can just tell them that like, we do not allow that kind of touching here. I do not want you to touch me. And if they're like, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't even think about it. They get to stay. And if they're like, you can't tell me not to touch people. I just throw them out we're serving people alcohol here. I don't want someone who's just going to start touching strangers. And so in developing my own personal boundaries around bodily autonomy, you know, how to, how to tell someone no in a, a situation very directly to their face. I learned that from stripping and it has been very useful in my life, but I did not have those skills uh, loaded into my programming prior to being shown exactly how to do them. Yeah. And oftentimes, um, if you confront someone about touching you, it's like they barely think about it. So they barely remember that they did it sometimes. Like it doesn't register to them. But I I think we should get into our first question. uh, Because a lot of this is what I struggled with. I struggled going from a pandemic studio apartment hyper hyper isolated just Paris for the longest time and 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 then Mr. Bird and then I um moved to New York and I was suddenly being perceived in my own home (laughs) how do you deal with being perceived and perceiving others in your own home how do you deal with there is someone here that I live with yeah so our first question is uh I have a lot of trouble dealing with the sounds and smells of other people in my own space. It makes me very intense, which in turn makes me constantly exhausted and angry, which definitely impacts the amount of energy I have left to complete my basic routines, especially at night. Moved out of my parents' house a few months ago after staying with them through the first year and a half of the pandemic. I now live alone, but I lived with roommates throughout college and found it just as stressful from a sensory standpoint as living with my family. I didn't realize I was autistic until January 2021, so I didn't really have the words to describe why I'd been so stressed 24-7 in my own college dorm and my own family's home. But this is one of the first things that clicked in my mind when I realized and started looking for a professional evaluation. Yeah, sensory overwhelm is is no joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a huge proponent of headphones, earbuds. I have a couple different types of of earbuds that, that let in different levels of sound. Loud noise is... Uh, like it feels like it feels like an attack I respond as if it is yeah I you don't necessarily have to 
minimize yourself, but I, I feel like vowing to be neutral and having your roommate sort of like be on the same page as like being neutral helps so much. You know, so you're not necessarily drowning out loud music mm. with noise canceling headphones. Like meeting at a neutral point, the submitter um, talks about perceiving and smelling other people's smells. Mm. We obviously have an, a lot of overlap with physical disabilities uh, in our community, me included. So I am very sensitive to smells and, you know, migraine triggers. And my biggest thing is vowing to be scent neutral. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not chemical free, but keep everything sort of in check and not overload on Febreze or, you know, something similar. Because Basically, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. I'm trying to be as emotionally regulated as possible and never have a bad day, just have a neutral day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for a living situation, you very much have to not disrupt each other and come from a place of respect. Since like probably 2018 or 2019, I've I've tried to make every aspect of every experience as neutral as possible Mm. which makes me sound like American psycho but (laughs) that's that's how I'm making it from week to week dealing with other humans yeah I feel like oftentimes in in roommate negotiations there is discussion of noise and I'd like to see a move towards doing that for smells just be be up front and be like I cannot do a lot of synthetic perfume or I need a scent neutral space as much as possible being trapped with a smell that's difficult someone sprayed me with perfume in an airport once right before a transatlantic flight and oh oh, it was miserable I couldn't get away from it it was on the clothes I had on I felt stuck with it that triggered fight or flight like so being upfront about smell needs as much as light sound touch that kind of thing uh, I think it's a great practice when you're looking for someone to live with. We currently have a struggle with our downstairs neighbors um, smoking in the common areas indoors, like in the stairwells and the hallways. Mm. And on my worst, like definitely like homebound and less fed and less like in control days, I feel like I am being sieged. Mm. I, I feel under attack. And obviously we have air filters, but as much as we try to explain the basic physics of solid liquid gas, gas expands to fill every space it's allowed. You know, we ask them to smoke inside their own apartments, but then they're like, oh, we don't want our apartments to smell like it. But it's like, my whole apartment is upstairs from you. You're smoking with no other doors preventing contamination you know I'm living with your smells you're not living with your smells I'm living with your smells so Mm -hmm. it very much feels like a war sometimes yeah I mean and physically your body is responding to that and it can be really hard to settle your system in the face of something like that and I think one other thing is depending on when you moved in with a roommate if it was pre-2020 you're seeing like way, way more of your roommate than either of you probably expected moving in. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to you know, renegotiate some terms that mm. you mm-hmm. might have been um, iffy about bringing up when there wasn't a pandemic. I, I don't think that living with one another had any of the implications then. Than it, it does now. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we read number two? Yeah, we can. Dear Charlie and Zach, ever since I started working from home due to COVID, I cannot for the life of me regularly brush my teeth in the morning. It's like my brain has a slot for teeth brushing after breakfast before I leave for work. And now that I don't leave for work, the slot is gone. I often just don't. I think it probably doesn't help that I saw this video about how you shouldn't brush your teeth more than 30 minutes before or to an hour after reading. I'm stuck in optimization mode of when's the ideal time to brush my teeth after waking up, putting it off because I have more coffee to drink. I'm about to eat lunch and it's 4 p.m. and my mouth's felt bruised all day and I haven't brushed my teeth or washed my face yet as I do it at the same time. 
solve the problem of not getting stuck doing whatever I'm doing at bedtime by putting an alarm clock in my bathroom so that I have to go there and turn it off. And since I'm in the bathroom anyway, I might as well start my bedtime routine. I can't do that in the morning because there's no one time when I definitely won't have a meeting on weekdays. Love any tips or tricks you or your, you and your guest have. That one is tough. I get that. I have I have some sensory stuff with flossing. Uh, so now I go. I use two different flosses that kind of go by the motto that some flossing is better than no flossing. I I sympathize with the chaotic morning schedule. How do you how do you put a schedule in place? Would you need one when there's variability? Uh, I really love the alarm clock in the bathroom at night. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, the toughest thing is that to get things done, you have to do them. (laughs) And this is something that I think about so much. And I had that realization years ago that Mm. to get things done, you have to do them. And that is so crushing because how do you convince yourself to do them? Um, you know, for me, teeth brushing is also a sensory thing. So like, I feel for this person with the optimization because this person has very bad OCD. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if they know, but the optimization thing relates to kind of a purity thing, Mm -hmm. um, a, a purity obsession. Um, so this is just beyond like ADHD and autism and, you know, forgetting to do something. This is like mm-hmm. a preoccupation with what is going to make me the most clean, you know, mm. statistically. And for this person, I think I need them to be able to think less, which is not an easy <laughs> piece of advice. You know, I can't tell you to think less. I, I think this person like would really benefit from going on autopilot Mm -hmm. and sort of a muscle memory thing where you are doing multiple parts of your routine at once. So I am on testosterone and I also had an eye injury. So I'm like applying lots of different groups at night. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, the only way I'm able to get this all done is to just not be present. Like not in a dissociative way, but in a muscle memory way. Yeah. It, it may be that this person needs to bundle things and mm-hmm. just like, I, I was talking about gamifying and itemizing. I think that's, that's what they need to do. Uh, because I also have had hygiene OCD in the, in the sense that I felt like I was stripping my skin using too much soap. So I had to like fully change everything about how I was washing my body. Not that I was like drying it out and aging it, but like something bad will happen with my Mm. skin, you know, if I dry it out too much, Mm -hmm. not even the sensation of being, of having dry skin, but very much the optimization of like, oh, I don't want to disrupt my biome. And that's like a weird, a weird thing that's like popping up on like skincare TikTok now is like, people are telling you not to wash yourself at all. And that ironically is a purity preoccupation and that is an OCD thing because you are so worried about something you can't even see um and you are foregoing your comfort for optimization Mm -hmm. yeah and see I kind of lucked out with this honestly because I hate the feeling of not having brushed my teeth worse than the task of brushing them or the feeling of brushing them, which I guess is, I have less of a trade-off to make, but the thing that in terms of making it work with my routine is, I mean, I shower in the morning, honestly, I just started brushing my teeth in the shower. Yeah. So it's it's one task, the, the, the showering is one task that happens to have uh, brushing my teeth as one leg of it. And that uh, that simplified things a little, and it, it kept me from getting bogged down in the details of laying out my morning routine when I can combine two steps like that rather than uh, having to plan them separately and uh, uh, get up the will for each of them separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the bundled muscle memory shower is yeah. is amazing. Now my showers they always go the exact same way, and I don't have to expend much energy you know, thinking about in what order I'm going to do things or how. 
I have two different shower. I have a long shower protocol and short shower protocol, uh, but they're both just like fully in my body. And that makes it really, that makes it easy for me to do it. So I really feel for our question asker who had their morning routine disrupted because it's hard to implement a new routine that sticks. And especially when you have, you know, additional factors that increase the difficulty of that. A friend of mine does phone timers for everything. He sets an alarm for pretty for his teeth uh, every day. And so when the alarm goes off, he just does his teeth. It doesn't matter if something else is happening. Obviously, if you have meetings to attend that are not uh, consistent, it can be hard to implement a system like that. But having a regular pattern has been really good for me. And I hope that this person can find uh, a way to put a pattern on top of their busy morning that they can eventually just do without thinking. A lot of those getting yourself to do a task is just introducing something you're uncomfortable with into something you're already comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, I, I guess that's the closest thing to a hack there is for this. I Visualizing yeah. the steps helps, helps me get something new into my, sometimes like I want to do something, but I feel like there's a disconnect And so like actually thinking through every single step, like, okay, I want to brush my teeth in the shower is not enough for me. I need to, I have to like visualize, like putting the toothpaste in there, putting the toothbrush in there, thinking through every little step of the process to get my executive function online to like do it. But once I've thought it through in my head, it almost feels like the work is done for me. I'm like, okay, I've thought through every little step of this and I'm to the end. Okay. I know how it ends. All right. Well, I'm going to go try it now. Um, because somehow, sometimes the uncertainty of where it's going to go, even if it's something mundane, uh, thinking through it, the mundane event to its completion can give me a, a felt sense of like, ah, okay, yeah, I know what this is. I can go do this. I also want to suggest to this person, maybe if you're this far in the pandemic and still doing Zoom meetings, like maybe incorporating, if you are getting fully dressed, if you aren't getting fully dressed, like get fully dressed from now on because you can make it part of part of an outfit like here I am presenting myself to the world I'm wearing underwear and or a bra I'm wearing a shirt I'm wearing pants that aren't stretchy pants I'm going to prevent present my face to the world either wearing makeup or not um but to present my face to the world it has to be clean and I have to you know put on chapstick or whatever so so to make it part of an outfit might also be a good hack uh because even even for recording like I was dressed today but I wasn't dressed in uh compression tights which I need um for physical disabilities and I didn't have a bra on so I had to get a bra on I had to at least get some brows and mascara on to make myself confident I have to be in what I call show mode. I think of things as a theater set. Mm -hmm. So when I have people coming over, I get my apartment in show mode. Potentially this person can can take the mindset of of making toothbrushing part of their work clothes. Mm -hmm. One of the life-saving things as far as my mental health during the pandemic actually has been that I became a lot more better dressed than I was beforehand, even though I'm like literally all dressed up and no place to go. It helped centered me and almost became like a uniform, but one that I set the terms for and Mm. it created stability uh, where there really was none. Yeah, I definitely can see that making it having a a strong influence. I was just going over my notes um, for what I wanted to cover. And I forgot to mention this. No one teaches you how to shower. It's true. (laughs) I, I read a long Reddit thread a long time ago about people not having been taught how to shower. And so one person thought that you get in, the water is not running you turn on the water, you deal with the minutes of cold water, oh. and then it warms up. And they were like complaining about like, oh man, don't you guys hate it when you have to wait in cold water? And people were like, no, you just don't go in, you know, you just mm-hmm. wait. And it was a whole thread of people like not having been taught how to shower. 
And I distinctly remember learning tips from a partner when I was in my first year of college, like, like very basic things Mm -hmm. about washing myself that I, I hadn't thought of before. And honestly, like leg washing discourse all comes down to like, there are just gaps in how you were raised, you know, and you just have to realize that there are gaps and then you adapt. Yeah, I'm a, I Google everything. I like to Google yeah. really simple questions because I find it, uh, it's been really helpful. For, oh, I love to Google various checklists just to see, you know, because yeah. it's, it's easy, you know, especially something as private as showering. Um, if that's not something that you do in a shared situation very often, you would never know. So that's why I like conversations yeah. like this because it's good to talk about it because then you can find where your own gaps are. We all have them. It's nothing to be ashamed about. Like we all have our own little knowledge gaps and that's fine. That's just part of being a person. Yeah. For example, like hairdressers are better at shampooing my hair than I am shampooing my hair because they are more practiced. Mm -hmm. And that's not a value judgment on me or them. Yeah. They're just better at it because they have more experience. I do want to talk before we, we get to our last question. I do want to talk about like hygiene and care and keeping and aftercare in terms of sex uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, BDSM or, uh, or not, because something that was really helpful for me was at one point, like learning people's like comfort tastes, what beverage do you have to have ready for them after sex? Some people are really specific about that. And it used to be, it used to be a thing on FetLife where you would delineate like what your aftercare was. And, you know, for the partner I was dating for all that time, like it was Coca-Cola. I don't know why, (laughs) but, you know, even if they were having a bad day, like, you know, this was not a very much sexual relationship, but sometimes it was essential. If something, if they were a little bit frazzled, if we had too many errands, like we needed to obtain a single bottle of Coca-Cola and, and it's like so easy. And for, for me, the taste is coffee, you know, that's my comfort taste. And I wish more people outside of kink knew what their aftercare needs were. Yeah. I wish they could go into situations and be like, Hey, if I'm coming over to your house, you need to have pretzels for me or else I won't feel normal or something (laughs) like that, you know? Uh, which is which is like very very autistic but I think anyone could incorporate like basically a rider uh, into their social situations <laughs> because uh, oftentimes you just need familiarity and you need regulation and you mm-hmm. need a second with yourself yeah well you know it's like the the best way to get your own needs met is to ask and the best way to uh, know what someone else needs is to ask them both of those things are very vulnerable things to do things that maybe we don't think about, but those gestures, uh, both expressing a need and asking someone to express their needs are, it could be really intimate acts and just really affirming and kind things to do. You know, some of that falls under the umbrella of kind of like the old school Southern hospitality that I grew up with. You know, you figure out what your guests like and you make sure you have something there for them to show them that like, hey, you're welcome in my space. It's a ritual marker. Like you are here. So I got the tea you like, so that you know, that I know you like it and you're loved here. And, you know, thinking about ways that you can add those kinds of interactions to your life can be really enriching. I sometimes struggle with feeling like I might ask for something that is weird or used to struggle with this. I don't so much anymore, but being able to have conversations about desire sexual or otherwise even just like what kind of beverages you like this would make me feel more comfortable this is something that I like and asking in such a way that is um, kind of solicitous of the other person's involvement like letting them in on a secret it's not a demand that but it's like a it's a secret thing that they now know about you that can bring you closer asking for uh, permission and consent is like such an intimate thing and it, it should be seen that way rather than the logistical obstacle of some kinds. For, for a long time, I thought people who drank needed to drink in all situations and all hangouts. Like it didn't mm. occur to me that if you drink, you sometimes just will not. 
depending on the context it it's it's such a it's such a big galaxy brain unlocking thing to like talk to each mm. other about what items you want around when you hang out and it's so funny that like i still think about people's aftercare lists on fet life in mm. 2011 and like how that blew my mind to to use internet parlance that was a cultural reset i will yeah. i will let you guys know i have about five more minutes before i need to go do bedtime stuff with my kid oh sure uh, no oh, definitely yeah okay let's do our decompression question we have a random question that we ask to just round out the episode that has nothing to do with anything so i'm going to ask song you cannot play around your pet or television or like doorbells for dogs etc etc like what what can you not have playing because <laughs> your cat or dog or bird will will react larry is she's pretty chill however if i play really loud music uh, it upsets her and she will try to not so much attacking my feet, but like grabbing them. <laughs> like there's something wrong here. And she'll be like, wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> she's looking at me right now. Like what? She just doesn't, there's a certain decibel level where she's like, this is not cool with me anymore. And I get that. I respect it. I turn it down when she does that. I'm not trying to stress out my cat, but she will like, she's very quiet cat. So it's very funny when the music is too loud because she never talks and then suddenly you're just like blasting some atrocity from high school in the kitchen at two in the morning. And the little cat yeah. comes running in like, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> then we turn it down for grandma. She doesn't like it. She's a good baby though. <laughs> is she, is she genre picky? Um, opera would make her like apoplectic. She doesn't like very like sustained, long, high mm -hmm. notes. Mm -hmm. But also if there's too much bass, she starts to touch the cabinets. <laughs> so uh, our, our cats are pretty chill, I, I say, as I'm trying to keep the tortoise shell off my desk. But uh, uh, Ziggy, our chihuahua, does not like, we don't talk about Bruno from Encanto for whatever reason. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, which is, you know... We're kind of asking for it by being like the only childless people uh, in America who have had that on a loop. But <laughs> it's, you never know what's going to set her off. I mean, she's, I, I guess it's some, she somehow connects it with uh, seeing people outside the window, which will always uh, get her, uh, get her going. And uh, Rachel, my wife, is always saying that the Chihuahuas are great guard dogs, but they wouldn't know what to do in terms of follow up. <laughs> yeah their the alarms well i think everybody knows by now that paris cannot hear britney spears toxic <laughs> i don't know if it's distress or if he thinks it's another bird the <laughs> da, 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 da. i think he thinks it's another bird because this originated when it was just me and him, like before Mr. Bird and obviously before the parakeets. He cannot hear it. And I also sometimes was playing the version that was in Promising Young Woman, uh, okay. the instrumental, like sort of, you know. Um, A spooky trailer version. <laughs> yes, yes, with violins and stuff. And, and he could not handle it. He absolutely <laughs> could not. Um, so whenever, whenever that little hook you know, no matter the format, uh, you know, no matter the cover, uh, he can't handle it. Um, and there are a couple other things like um, Hosier's cherry wine at the end has some bird sounds um, and also rock lobster for the B-52s. It, you know, it has that breakdown where it's just like them making dolphin noises. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that scared him the first time, but he's okay now with the b-52s he's friends with the b-52s now um but yeah 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 i lost him the other night and i was about to put on toxic because i couldn't you know i needed him to like start calling out to me uh but but i found Marco. him so i didn't yeah yeah exactly yeah that's exactly what it is so at least now i have that in my toolbox because he does sometimes get lost so that was our episode 
Um, uh, thank you so much, Lee. Uh, thank you for coming and um, tell us where we can find you. Yes, yes. please. Uh, you can find my book, Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, wherever books are sold. Uh, it's available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Um, I do the narration in the audiobook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Voracious Brain. And if you have any questions for me after the show, please feel free to direct message me. Um, I'd be happy to chat. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks Thank again you so much. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we uh, will see the rest of you next time. Uh, thank you so much for writing in. Uh, please keep doing that. We really appreciate it. Can't do the show without it. <laughs> yeah, and next episode, we are actually going to bully a neurotypical. So <laughs> write in any questions that you've always wanted to ask of a neurotypical. Like, why do you guys do that? What does this mean? Uh, so write in at stimforstim at gmail.com, S-T-I-M, the number four, S-C-I-M at gmail.com or uh, DM us on Twitter uh, under the same handle. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you guys next time.